With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last Sunday morning, we started a new morning worship series that we are entitling Understanding the Hard Sayings of Jesus. It is my hope and prayer that you will find this series not only intriguing and interesting, but also informative. And it is even further my prayer that as you and I gain insight into some of the difficult sayings of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will challenge you and me to greater faith, and greater obedience. The hard sayings of Jesus are hard or difficult to understand primarily because of a multiple of reasons. Sometimes they're hard to understand because of language difficulties. Sometimes they're difficult to understand because of cultural difficulties. Sometimes they're difficult to understand because of historical difficulties. Sometimes they're also difficult to understand because of church tradition. By that I mean some portion of the church has taken a teaching of Jesus and they have misunderstood it, but they've been so effective in propagating their teaching that their teaching has impacted the rest of the body of Christ when it comes to understanding that passage. So there are a multiplicity of reasons why the sayings of Jesus that are hard are simply difficult to understand. This morning, uh, as we are in the second of a series of 15 messages, God willing, throughout the summer into September, we're looking at a hard teachings of Jesus where He says we're to turn the other cheek. There is a sizable portion of Christendom who have down through the years taken this teaching as the biblical basis for Christian pacifism, meaning that they believe that a Christian is never to raise up arms against another human being. We are never to use violence or force to defend ourselves or anyone else who may be threatened or in danger. We are not, they assert, to resist evil with force. Now, Most of Christendom has rejected that understanding. However, you will hear it from time to time among well-meaning people who will say you're supposed to turn the other cheek. And that meaning in their way of interpreting, you're not supposed to defend yourself or others. Is this indeed what Jesus meant? Does our Lord forbid His true and sincere followers from defending ourselves or others if and when we might believe that we are threatened. May I invite you to open with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. And I'd like to read two verses that are often referred to by Christian pacifists. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As we come to this passage, we are immediately faced with two difficulties. The first difficulty is the teaching of the rabbis to which Jesus is reacting in this passage. And the second difficulty is, of course, the hard saying of the Lord Jesus as He does react to the teaching of the rabbis. We therefore will try to unleash the enigma and mystery of this passage by addressing, first of all, the teaching of the rabbis to which Jesus is reacting, and then we'll seek to clarify the hard teaching of Jesus that follows. So, first of all, then, we must note the context quickly of this teaching. First of all, we notice this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of Jesus' major teaching portions as the Messiah, the Lord of the kingdom of God. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Second, we also notice that in verse 17 of this very chapter, chapter 5, Jesus said He came to fulfill the law, not to overturn or to destroy the law. So whatever Jesus is going to teach, we know that He is not undermining the law of God and the teaching of the Old Testament. Let me just digress for a moment. Jesus is the Lord Sovereign God, the embodiment of all divine truth. you agree? We saw last week He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was claiming to be God and the embodiment of all divine truth. The Jesus of the New Testament is the same Jesus of the Old Testament. Will you agree with that? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If Jesus is disagreeing with the Old Testament, then Jesus is disagreeing with Jesus. And if you have Jesus disagreeing with Jesus, we have nothing but confusion. If Jesus disagrees with Jesus, if the Jesus of the New Testament is disagreeing with the Jesus of the Old Testament and its teaching, we have nothing but confusion and nobody knows anything about what the Bible means. Oh, no. The Holy Spirit and the Son of God are consistent throughout the Word of God. Therefore, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, what's going on here? Because it sounds like Jesus is contradicting the Old Testament. That is not, in fact, the case. When Jesus refers to and quotes the Old Testament, He will say, it is written. Right? It is written. And then you know He's quoting the Old Testament. And you also know He is quoting it in its proper meaning and context. Here, Jesus does not use that formula. It is written, He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Indeed, He is quoting an Old Testament teaching, but He is quoting the oral tradition of the rabbis. When He says it is written, He's quoting the written Old Testament. When He says you have heard it said... He's going to quote the oral teaching of the rabbis 
who, of course, are going to quote a Scripture because then they're going to give you their interpretation and application of the Scriptures. But throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you see this dichotomy. Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He's saying, you have heard the rabbis teach. That's a paraphrase. But I'm saying unto you, the Scripture they're quoting means something different. They have missed the meaning and the spirit of the Scripture they're quoting. But I'm going to give you the true meaning and the true spirit of the Old Testament Word of God, which was the only Bible that Jesus and His disciples and the rabbis had. They didn't have the New Testament at that time. Their Scriptures were what we know to be the Old Testament Scriptures. All right? Also, we notice that the Old Testament, in fact, does teach an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If the rabbis misunderstood that teaching, what is that teaching truly there in the Old Testament for? What did it mean? What was its significance? So that we can understand the truth from which the rabbis departed to which Jesus was reacting. All right? In the Old Testament, Moses says, by the authority of God, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To whom is Moses speaking when on three occasions... In Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19, he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To whom is he speaking? If you will go back and notice, he is speaking to the judges of Israel. He's not speaking to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Well, that really wouldn't be true, would it? Tom, Dick, and... Well, anyway, those are not Jewish names. But uh, he was not talking to the common, ordinary guy or lady. He was specifically giving direction to the judges of Israel. When cases came before them where someone had been offended or wounded or hurt or injured in some way, the guiding principle that was to guide the judge who was hearing the case was simply this. God says, let the punishment fit the crime. That's all an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means. Let the punishment fit the crime. Therefore, if a man kills your ox, are you going to go kill his ox? No, he's going to give you a financial remuneration. But it will be a proportionate penalty that he will pay. And so the judges were to do this. Actually, this prescription, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was to be the guiding principle that was to encourage two Jews, who one who might have a claim against the other, to go before the judges for a civil settlement. Not to take matters into their own hands, but to trust that the judges of Israel would provide a fair and proportionate settlement of the issue. In fact, it prohibited and discouraged personal vendettas, personal revenge against a fellow Jew when there was a dispute between them. So it actually was a way to provide for an orderly settlement of disputes. And it was given to the judges of Israel. However, the rabbis took this prescription given to the judges of Israel and they gave it as a prescription to the individual that allowed an individual Jew to seek personal vengeance or revenge or satisfaction or retaliation against a fellow Jew when he felt that he had been injured or wronged in some way. So while the rabbis 
took a prescription for the judges of Israel and said, okay, individual Jew, if you want to retaliate when you've been wrong, you may do so. However, it must be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, your retaliation has got to be proportionate to the wrong done against you. Seriously, that's the problem. The rabbis gave the individual permission to retaliate, and they used this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth as a way of saying, but keep it civil. But the problem is when you're emotionally hurt or involved in a situation, you tend to overdo things, don't you? I certainly do. I say I don't get even. I get ahead. Isn't that true? In court today, they will give you uh, a judgment against your someone who's injured you, they will pay you for the injuries, and then there's something called punitive damages. Is that not true? Well, when you inflict damages against someone who's wounded you, it usually includes a little punitive, because we don't want to get even, we want to get ahead. We want to teach them a lesson. So when the teaching of the rabbis were applied, it encouraged an escalating hostility. But it's going to encourage an escalating hostility. Chuck reacts. He's going to do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but he gets an eye and a tooth. So now I'm wounded and I'm hurt. How am I going to react? I'm going to get both of his eyes and a tooth. And next thing you know, these hostilities are increasing between us. And then it's not just Chuck and me. It's between our families. And eventually it's not just between our families. It's between our friends. And then you've got a Hatfield and the McCoy type situation. People who had no original interest in the, my uh, injury against Chuck are now beginning to take sides. So what happens is, is this sort of uh, personal vendetta can actually wreak havoc with dividing families, dividing friends, dividing communities, dividing synagogues. Have you ever heard of churches being split in two or three different ways? Absolutely you've heard it. And uh, it can eventually split the nation. So this teaching of the rabbis was not only contrary to the teaching of the Old Testament, which Jesus represented, incidentally, and the teaching of the prophets, which Jesus represented, in fact, but it was dangerous to the very existence of families and synagogues and communities and eventually could threaten the very existence of an entire nation. If people could do what is right in their own eyes... So you can understand why Jesus would want to react against this misunderstanding and misapplication of the rabbis of this Old Testament teaching. Well, there are some who would say that while Jesus might have clarified the Old Testament teaching, it seemed like he confused things when he said, But I say unto you, if a man strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. Don't resist him who is evil. That's confusing. Well, is it an overreaction to the Old Testament teaching? I don't think so at all. Jesus never overreacts. So now let's try to clarify the teaching of Jesus here. First of all, let me assure you, Jesus is addressing situations and offenses where there is no life-threatening circumstances. Jesus is not saying, if a robber comes into your house under the cloak of darkness that you don't have a right to defend yourself, your wife, and your children. He's not saying that. He's not saying that if you are conscripted to be in your national armed forces, that you should not bear arms against the enemies of your nation. He is not saying that police officers 
should carry billy clubs rather than firearms. Because I'll tell you, if there's a bad guy that's looking for me, I'd love to have Pat Jernigan stand between me and the bad guy with fully armed. I want a police officer stand between me and the bad guys, right? Jesus is not addressing a situation where it is a life and death situation. He's not doing that, and I'll prove it to you. Now, let me ask you a question. Are most people right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. I know there are a few left-handers out there, but most sane people are right-handed. All right? Most sane people are right-handed. Most insane people are also right-handed, by the way. But most sane people are right-handed. So, if, if you and I are standing together and you are angry with me and you're either going to attack me for some reason in anger or whatever, you're going to get even with me, you're balling up your right fist, which cheek are you going to hit most likely? Huh? The left cheek, because you're going to come around like this, aren't you? So if I'm standing like this, you're going to come around and hit my left cheek. Well, that's a telltale sign right there. Jesus is not talking about a situation where someone is striking you in anger or in self-defense. So, how then, because he says, let's look and see what he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. How does someone hit you on the, on the right cheek? The way he does that is he backhands you. He slaps you with the back of his hand. Now, according to Dr. William Barclay, he says, according to rabbinic literature, the backhand slap was about as insulting as anything you could do to a fellow human being in the Jewish culture. Spitting in their face would not be any more insulting than to slap somebody with the back of your hand. So what is Jesus referring to here? He's talking about a situation of personal insult. Somebody insults you for whatever reason. They're insulting you. And that insult is exaggerated. It is demonstrated by the slapping of your right cheek. Let me uh, digress for just a moment. Was Jesus a pacifist? Remember, the pacifists will refer to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He did not resist the temple guards. He did not resist the Sanhedrin. Terrible miscarriage of justice. They struck him. They beat him. They took him to Pilate. Pilate had him whipped. He didn't resist Pilate. And ultimately, they had him crucified, and he did not resist there. And those who are Christian pacifists say, there you go, the ultimate example of Christian pacifism. We are called to do the same. No, 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 no. Jesus was on a redemptive mission. He had a redemptive mission to accomplish. He told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Must I not drink of the cup that the Father has appointed unto me? What was the cup? To suffer and to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. Jesus said, Peter, I can call down twelve legion of angels to deliver me from these guards. If I choose not to be delivered, it's because there's a higher purpose here, a higher mission. So I would never quote the Garden of Gethsemane, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, or, the, or Calvary as an example of Christian pacifism 
Because Jesus had a mission to accomplish, and that's how He accomplished it. He had to submit. And remember, He even said to Pilate, you would have no authority over Me unless it was given to you from above. I would point out that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I could call down twelve legion of angels. Now, what are those angels? What do you think they would have done? Tickled the temple guards? Had them rolling on the ground in laughter? I don't think so. If he says, I could call these down, he could have called them down. And it would not have been, I would not want to have been one of the temple guards when these twelve legions of angels show up. I don't know if those temple guards would have been killed on the spot, but they sure probably would have wished they'd have been killed on the spot. That's not Christian pacifism. Also, Jesus rebuked the temple guards and said, Let my disciples go. It is me you seek. He was defending the innocent. That's not Christian pacifism. Also, let me point out that when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin and Annas, a retired high priest, addressed Jesus and Jesus said, Look, I have spoken in public everywhere. If you have any questions about anything I've said, go and ask those who are my witnesses. They will tell you exactly what I have said in public and not in secret. And the Roman officer came and slapped Jesus. Jesus did not take it lying down. He rebuked the Roman officer. He said, if I have spoken evil, bear witness to the evil. Otherwise, why do you strike me? That's not pacifism. That's not suffering like a silent sheep. He had a purpose there. He was the sinless Son of God. It was absolutely critical that at every stage in his life, and particularly in those last hours where he was being led to Calvary, that Jesus maintained that He was the sinless, pure Son of God, who was the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, who takes away the sin of the world. And had He sinned before the Sanhedrin, He would have been disqualified to be the Lamb of God. And when they accused Jesus before the Sanhedrin of two crimes, one was insurrection, the other was blasphemy, claiming to be God, He denied the insurrection. He never denied the claim to be God. It would have been a sin for him to claim that I never claimed to be God. So this was not a personal and private affront to Jesus. Had it been, I don't think he would have responded. But it had to do with a greater cause, a cause greater than just that incident. He had to demonstrate and challenge the Roman soldier, if I have spoken evil, then bear witness to the evil. And, of course, he had no... And you know, just like Jesus during his earthly ministry, challenged his critics. He said, who are you among you accuses me of sin? And they had many criticisms of Jesus, but they never could quite get him on any sin. Also, I would point out, don't want to forget this, twice in Jesus' ministry, once recorded in John 2 and the other Matthew 21, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus did something of great interest and importance. The Jews saw it as a messianic claim but it surely does not fit into the scope of Christian pacifism. Remember this little incident where he cleansed the temple? What did he do? He very patiently made a whip out of cords. And then did he go and try to 
convince these people that they were in the wrong, that they were carrying on commerce in the court of the Gentiles, and that the Gentiles had no place to pray or to worship the God of Israel, and therefore they should leave? Did he try to reason with them? Did he said, guys, I'm going to hold a Bible study here? Not at all. What did he do? With great patience and deliberation, checking every step, I think, with the Holy Spirit, he made that whip and he drove them out of the temple precinct and did not let them come in. Now, while that was a claim to be the Messiah, and the Jews realized that that's what he was claiming, it still does not fit into the mode of Christian pacifism. Jesus here was defending the integrity and holiness of the house of God. And he said, in the, he said his justification, God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. So, again, it was not something personal. It was a greater cause. But he was not a pacifist in the historic sense of Christian pacifism. Jesus is addressing injuries that are against our personal honor or our personal reputation. When he talks about turning the other cheek, I believe what he is saying here is that we choose not to take an offense when someone wrongs us. Oh, it's not that we could not be justified in taking offense. After all, if someone slaps you, that kind of hurts, doesn't it? Sure it does. So when someone says something against you, questions your character, questions your motivation, questions your integrity, someone says something about you personally that hurts and stings, Jesus says, Turn the other cheek. If they want to take another swipe at you, let them do it. But he says, don't take up the offense when it's personal, when it's superficial. Now, I'll talk to you in just a moment about how to address an offense against you that you just simply have to address. But at this point, if you can walk away from it, walk away from it. That's what Jesus is telling us to do. How many times have a feud between believers in a Baptist church basically dissolved into nothing because one of the two individuals decided simply to walk away from the feud? A soft word turns away anger. You're choosing not to take an offense when you might have a right to do so. You're trying to de-escalate the tension and the anxiety. It is interesting, what we are forbidden to do as Christians is to return evil for evil. If someone's breaking into my home under the cloak of darkness and I defend myself, what I'm doing is not evil. Sanctioned by the Bible. I don't know what the motives of that intruder is in my home. He is perpetrating evil upon me and my family, but I'm not returning evil to him by defending myself. That's part of the fallacy and the logic that I'm being evil. If someone is a murderer in society, for society with total objectivity to find that person guilty and then to sentence them to death is biblical and it is not society being evil. It is society upholding the sanctity of life. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 12. Keep a finger there, if you would. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 17 and following. 
Remember, the teaching of the apostles are commentaries on the gospel teaching of Jesus. Look at Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. No slander for slander, no gossip for gossip. No insult for insult. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men by turning the other cheek and choosing not to take up an offense. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. That's the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. In other words, he's saying, do something good for the person who insults you. That's what you're supposed to do. We are not to feel a need to retaliate ourselves or to defend ourselves. We are to allow God to retaliate in our behalf and to defend the truth. God is our defender. If someone's speaking ill about you, if you can turn the other cheek, choose not to take up an offense, eventually the truth comes out. Have you ever found that to be the case? Eventually the truth comes out, and the source of the insult and the slander, it eventually returns on their head, and people begin to realize the source is the problem. I think what Jesus is saying is that a godly life is a life of self-restraint that trusts in God. I'd like to quote Arthur Pink, who is a great and highly respected commentator. He says, God forbids us both in the law and in the Gospels to recompense evil for evil. When the injury received is a personal and private one, it is the Christian's duty to bear it in the spirit of meekness so long as by so doing he is not encouraging evildoers and thereby rendering them a menace to others. How do you respond to serious injuries against you when someone strikes you on the cheek? How are you supposed to respond? Well, there are two different situations, and your response is somewhat different in each. The first response is when someone strikes you on the cheek because you are the source of the initial injury. I've said something against Dave, and it has wounded him deeply. And he responds by slapping me on the right cheek, by insulting and wounding me. And now I'm picking up an offense. If the Holy Spirit can convict my heart and help me to understand that I am the original cause and source of the problem, then according to Jesus in Matthew 5 again, a lot of this is in Matthew 5, then I am to go to Dave, ignoring his offense against me because I realize I'm the one who started it. I go to Dave, and I make things right with Dave. That's the way we solve it, not a continually escalating situation. But I need to be in the Spirit of God enough to realize, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really, I shouldn't have said that about Dave. He's just reacting to what I said about him or to what I did to him. God, forgive me. I can't justify his reaction, and I'm not going to justify your reaction. But my response is to go to Dave and say, Dave, I have sinned against you. 
man, I deserve what you did and, and ten times more. Please forgive me. And I just suspect the Holy Spirit will be at work in Dave's heart and Dave will say, you know, I was wrong too. And God can actually draw us closer together after that altercation. But then the second situation is where you are the innocent party and this person has decided to slap you on the right cheek. Now, at that point, you have Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus says, if you cannot turn the other cheek and walk away, or if the offense is not just about you, but it's about something bigger than you. In other words, you cannot ignore it because to do so will encourage the person to do further evil and to inflict damage on other people. The responsible thing to do is to begin Matthew 18. And that's where you go to the person and you confront them with their sin, with a spirit of humility, meekness, calling upon them to repent. If they refuse, Jesus says, take two witnesses. These are objective individuals who can be sure that you are not overreacting. And they appeal to the individual, the offender. If the person hears them and repents, you've regained your brother or your sister. If they refuse to repent, then you're to go to the church. And the church, as an objective, neutral partner in the whole process, gets involved and deals with the issue. So Jesus has told us, when you cannot turn the other cheek or it would be unwise to do so, irresponsible to do so, then you employ Matthew 18. Let me conclude in summary then. Number one, Jesus instructs His followers to dismiss the superficial offenses that others commit against us. We are not to return insult for insult, slander for slander, injury for injury. Never is that appropriate. We are to allow God to defend our reputation and the truth, because the truth is being assaulted as well. And then finally, if we believe that we must respond to the offense, and it would be irresponsible to do anything else, then we are instructed by Jesus to follow the teachings of our Lord in Matthew 5 or in Matthew 18, and seek to be at peace, whereas it lies within our power, with all people. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.